FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. This is Bernard Gersh at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, with me is Dr. Charles Bruce, uh, one of my colleagues who is Professor of Medicine and also Director of the uh, Mayo Clinic uh, Center of Excellence for Structural Heart Disease. And in that context, we're going to talk about Marfan syndrome. And uh, welcome, Charles. Thank you, Bernard. Uh, this really is a great opportunity to share with you some of our novel insights into Marfan syndrome. And in fact, broadly speaking, thoracic aortic aneurysms. Uh, and then how we are recently beginning to understand the pathophysiology from a genetic basis and how this is impacting our ability to treat patients with this condition differently. So just begin uh, briefly. I know that some of the diagnostic criteria have been uh, revised, and perhaps you could just begin with uh, giving us a quick um, update into the current diagnosis of Marfan's syndrome. Well, Bernard, it's very important to stress that this is a clinical diagnosis. Now, although our understanding from a genetic basis has, has really improved, and we understand now that Marfan syndrome specifically is a result of a fibrillin 1 gene mutation, uh, in the absence of a confirmed gene mutation or a family member, an immediate family member with the diagnosis of Marfan syndrome, we look for a few uh, certain uh, features. One is ectopia lentis, yeah. uh, which is uh, a dislocation of the lens. Uh, secondly is... Is that uh, something we can diagnose as cardiologists, or do we have to send them down to ophthalmology? Well, an ophthalmologist usually has intervened because these patients really need a careful slit light uh, examination. The other two important criteria that we look for uh, is aortic root dilatation, because this is, of course, why we as physicians are so concerned about Marfan syndrome and thoracic aortic aneurysms in, in general, is that the diagnosis and the condition may go undetected and present with this catastrophe of aortic dissection or aortic rupture. Uh, and so everything that we do is a, aimed at addressing this cardiovascular complication of Marfan syndrome in an effort to prevent aortic dissection or it, rupture. It has been said that as a result of all of this, and I want you to link together the genetics with the new treatments in a moment, but it has been said that the result of all of this is that this is one of the diseases that has experienced the most dramatic increase in longevity of any that we see in cardiovascular medicine in the last few years. It, it's been a complete rewrite of the, well, I won't say natural history, but unnatural history. Absolutely. In fact, now a patient with Marfan syndrome can expect to live to uh, 70, which was unheard of uh, a few decades ago, all because of the early intervention. Firstly, the earlier diagnosis of Marfan syndrome, then the serial observation of the aortic root diameter, and then timely intervention when the aortic root diameter exceeds five centimeters, where we can then offer aortic repair or uh, aortic surgery. Yeah. So uh, I want to step back a little bit and, and there, tell us a bit about the fascinating work that people like uh, Dr. Dietz have done in, in terms of defining the genetic substrate and really leading into potential new pharmacologic approaches to the management. It's, I mean, it's a great story. Absolutely. But just quickly before addressing that, I wanted just to mention the third very important component of the diagnosis, and that is looking at the skeletal or mm -hmm. skeletal criteria. And, and, and again, I'd probably refer your listeners to uh, the, 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 um, the website by the National Marfan Foundation 
marfan.org, where uh, they have this very well outlined. But there are a number of skeletal manifestations that each are assigned a point, and when you achieve more than seven points, that then fulfills uh, uh, an important component of the diagnostic criteria for Marfan's. Going back now to your question about Hal Dietz and the discoveries that he's made, well, as you as you recall, uh, it was his group that identified the fibrillin one gene mutation as the causative uh, genetic problem resulting in what we see as manifest manifesting as classic Marfan syndrome. How does that relate to Louis Dietz disease? Well, it's interesting because our understanding from a genetic basis is that it's all related to transforming growth factor beta signaling. And uh, this is a cytokine that is manufactured throughout the body in all cells, and it governs the way the nucleus transcribes proteins and protein synthesis that's related to the extracellular matrix and the way that the smooth muscle cell within the aortic media communicates with the extracellular matrix. And this extracellular matrix is composed of fibrillin. And when the fibrillin is malfunctioning because the fibrillin gene is not normal, it doesn't bind transforming growth factor beta like normal fibrillin does, with the result that you have an excess of transforming growth factor beta available for cell signaling. This then results in a cascade of events that ultimately result in an increase in metalloproteinases um, within the aortic media that results in inflammation, ultimately infiltration of myofibroblasts, uh, and what we see, what used to be termed a cystic medial necrosis. Yeah that results ultimately in a weakening of the, weakening of the, uh, of the aortic wall that predisposes it to dilatation, aneurysm so, formation, so and rupture. So what is the relationship to um, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibition or exactly, angiotensin a very good. receptor block? Well, this, well, well um, Hal Dietz and Lewis Bartz looked at, uh, at, at a unique group of individuals who uh, actually had a uh, abnormality of the transforming growth factor beta receptor. And it turns out that when you had abnormalities in these genes, there were fewer normal uh, transforming growth factor beta receptors available on the smooth muscle cell that effectively were being bombarded by transforming growth factor beta, resulting in a paradoxic increase in signaling. And this resulted in uh, in people affected with this disorder having a very aggressive form of Marfan syndrome, in fact called Lewis Dietz syndrome. So presenting with aneurysmal disease at much younger ages and with dissections occurring at much younger ages. In addition, having extra cardiac involvement too, so intracranial aneurysms, mm -hmm. abdominal aneurysms. And so that then led them to think, well, what if we treated mice, a mouse model, with Losartan, which is known to actually affect transforming growth factor beta signaling. And so they created this model where they intentionally made mice develop Marfan syndrome by affecting their, their fibrillin gene, and then treated these mice with placebo, some with a beta blocker, our traditional treatment that we've used for ages for patients with Marfan syndrome, and then with Losartan. And remarkably, the mice that were treated yeah. with losartan did not have the same aneurysmal formation than that, now the that's untreated led to mice. A clinical trial. Absolutely, and in fact, uh, that trial has just—it was a NIH-funded trial that's now uh, completed enrollment. Uh, the results are going to be available in about 2014, but we're eagerly awaiting this. How big a trial is this? Do you know? Uh, it enrolled 608 uh, eight patients. With it was a multi-center. 
absolutely very so Charles criteria. I'd like to spend our remaining five minutes on this a patient comes to you in the Marfan clinic um, I want you to take take us through the pharmacologic management and then tell us your rules for when you call a surgeon so um, let's take a 15 20 year old comes in my fans has been diagnosed what is your therapeutic approach algorithm if I can use the term well just some basic things first yeah. you know you want to avoid any contact activities so there's some counseling there's counseling regarding uh, children uh, particularly because it's an autosomal dominant condition is uh, everybody so seen by a geneticist in the clinic everyone we have a multidisciplinary approach we have an excellent clinic uh, that really spans not only radiology because you need good radiologists comfortable interpreting the images but orthopedic surgeons ophthalmologists cardiologists cardiac surgeons and of course geneticists so team. it's a really team multidisciplinary approach actually it's, it's been interesting in quite a few of our interviews in d very different areas this is just coming out team approach team approach whether it be the heart team or multidisciplinary but okay Absolutely. Uh, so, so, so you have the general approach, then pharmacologic therapy. Very important that uh, if the patient is hypertensive, that this is treated. And I think based on our earlier discussion, if you have an excuse for using an angiotensin receptor blocker, there's certainly good scientific reason right now to but, do that. But beta blockers and all. Well, no. All patients, if they can tolerate it, should be on a beta blocker. Right. And if what, they have hypertension. What sort of doses are you titrating up to maximum doses as, yes. as we do with Hocum? Absolutely. Sometimes younger patients don't tolerate them right. so well, but generally beta blockers are well so tolerated. So if the patient is not hypertensive and they're on a beta blocker, but they're not hypotensive, should I be adding uh, an ARB or should I be waiting for two, till 2014? I have a very low threshold for instituting an angiotensin receptor blocker understanding that it's not FDA approved for that, that indication, but that there's certainly potential uh, for, for benefit. So I have a low threshold, certainly if the patient has a history of hypertension, certainly okay. would start an ARB. But before we get into the surgical side, so the patient is a 22-year-old, she clearly has Marfan's, she wants to get pregnant. Uh, how do you approach that? Well, again, it'll depend very much on what the imaging has shown her aorta to be. Apart from the genetic counseling that's paramount, uh, we then are going to be faced with the aortic dimension. Right. Now, this leads us onto the discussion about when you would recommend a patient undergoing elective, um, so, elective so surgery. So let's do that first, and then we'll end sure. up with a pregnant, with a sure. person who wants to get pregnant. So, 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 so basically, the, 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 the guidelines are clear. And, and I think it may be important also just to add that these guidelines that I'm going to be recommending apply also to b patients with bicuspid aortic valve disease. So uh, when the aortic diameter at any level that includes the sinuses, the sinotubular junction, or the ascending aorta reaches five centimeters or more, that is time to proceed with elective, Surgical a elective a surgery. I would also add that you may consider intervening at smaller diameters if there's a strong family history of early dissection or unexplained death, or if there's rapid increase in aortic diameter of greater than two millimeters per year. Greater than two millimeters per, per year. year. So, so all the of these factors that I take seen, are the... All of these patients are seen annually, and if you see someone with a diameter of 45 centimeters, are you going to bring them back every six months? For sure. For sure. For sure. And that comes back to then to the pregnancy thing, is that generally this is somewhat controversial. European and North American guidelines differ a little. But generally, when the aortic diameter is reaching 40 to 45 millimeters is when we would suggest that, the, that, that proceeding with pregnancy would be unsafe. 
So you'd go ahead with surgery and then yes. pregnancy afterwards. So I just want to pin you down on this again because I think it's important for our listeners. Between 40 and 45 aortic dimension, annual visits, from 45 onwards every six months, progression of more than two millimeters per year, or a strong family history of dissection, surgery, and once it reaches 50, surgery. Absolutely. And then I think that you also need to bear in mind that, again, looking at the stability of things, you, th- th- those may not be hard and fast rules for interval, interval screening. Oh, and what we're not touching on is h- what kind of you know, imaging modality you use. I just want to stress again, echocardiography is our workhorse, but you don't want to be subjecting young people to radiation with CT scans at very frequent intervals. So this really is a, a, a clinical judgment. MRI? MRI is a very excellent modality. Generally, in my practice, I will use echo as the gold standard, get a, a CT or MRI to see that, in fact, yep. the measurements correlate, and, and then, then use the echo. So then you can compare apples with apples. CT and MRI are indispensable in the post-operative patient for surveillance because echo then is not good enough for looking at the aortic arch and the descending thoracic aorta where problems may arise. Last question, if you see a patient with uh, aortic insufficiency that's mild to moderate, does that mean anything to you specifically with Marfan's in terms of the root? And Very much, because again, this is also subject of an ongoing trial, is that the, 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 the standard approach to the treatment of um, Marfan syndrome and aortic root enlargement which pr- principally involves, involves the aortic sinuses, has been the Benthol procedure, yeah. which is basically uh, a mechanical aortic prosthesis with a graft. Uh, now we have advances in surgical technique that permit us to spare the aortic valve if the aortic valve is otherwise intrinsically normal with nothing more than mild aortic regurgitation. And so this really is a, a tremendous opportunity for patients to preserve the aortic valve and all the consequences of a, having a mechanical prosthesis and anticoagulation issues. Charles, last question, particularly the, also the patient with the bicuspid aortic valve. When do you look at the cerebral vessels? Well, that's a good question. Certainly in anyone who has Lewis Dietz syndrome or concern for Lewis Dietz syndrome. How do you diagnose Lewis Dietz as Lewis opposed Dietz, to? Genetically. Okay. So, so there are some morphologic okay. features, but genetically... But what about the, the bicuspid aortic valve patient? May, have not, may not have had a coagulation. When do you... Do you get an MRA at any time routinely? Or? I'm not aware of any strict guidelines in that regard. Uh, I, I personally do not image the, 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 the head and neck vasculature in, in, in patients routinely with, with, with the bicuspid aortic valve. But I do think it's important to stress that the aortopathy associated with the bicuspid aortic valve is also inherited as an autosomal dominant condition with variable penetrance. So it is critical that if you have a patient with a bicuspid aortic valve to screen first degree relatives. It's also important to appreciate that the aortopathy may occur in the absence of a bicuspid aortic valve in one of those relatives. So you may indeed have a a relative with a bicuspid aortic valve, a a sibling who has a normal appearing valve but may still be predisposed to the aortic aneurysm. So we've moved from the spectrum from an aortic valve from aortic valve diseases to aortopathies. Precisely. Thanks very much, Charles. Oh, thank you, Bernard. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.